All right, so we've been doing a series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. And I only got about 20 minutes to, uh, to cover today's subject. So uh, we've been looking at the fact that when Christ ascended, Ephesians 4, 7, that he gave gifts to men. Uh, and that um, those gifts I call the sevenfold service gifts or ministry gifts. Uh, because most people include just the list in Ephesians 4.11, which is five, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I add uh, others from 1 Corinthians 12.28, helps and administrations. And so we've discussed um, a number of New Testament words, starting with priest, and we looked at the priesthood of all believers. We've looked at deacon, and where, what that mean, word means, that's an office. Uh, but these... Gift uh, service gifts are more than offices. They're uh, a set of, of giftedness that are part of Christ himself. Christ was the perfect, all seven of these. You know, he begins the Last Supper in John's account by washing the disciples' feet, the gift of helps. And uh, he sets an example for us that uh, if we're going to touch the power of the Holy Spirit, we better have service. It's, a, it's the foundational thing of our heart. And so um, I think all of these gifts are important, and they're all just part of the one great giftedness that Jesus Christ carried within himself. He was the perfect apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, helps, and administrator. So, uh, today we're going to look at the word evangelist. Um, I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek words, but it's something like euangelistes. The word is only used three times in the New Testament, and it's used in two contexts or two ways. And all three of the verses are listed there, Acts 21.8, 2 Timothy 4.5, in Ephesians 4.11. So, um, there's only one person in the New Testament who's called uh, an evangelist, and that person is Philip. Now, in case you forgot, um, Philip, by the way, the, wor the word means a herald or a, an announcer, an announcer of glad tidings and of good news. Um, if you've ever listened to any, any of our uh, eight essential elements of the gospel, the good news series, you know that we emphasize for the first three or four uh, messages in that, or the first three of the eight, are what I call the bad news. And uh, the gospel is only good news when you're in reality about the true news, which is the condition of the, uh, the truths about who God is, what's wrong with man, and man's violation of God's law, and the fact that there, there is a wrath of God. Nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God today. You're actually considered insensitive and inhumane and unpolite, uh, Etc. if you talk about the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is, is an emphasis of Scripture. And, and the gospel delivers us first and foremost from the wrath of God. So it is very good news. The gospel is better news than if you're a cancer patient and, you're, and, you're, and you've got a day or two left to be completely healed. It's better than that. It's really better than just about anything you can think of. It's so good that it's, that it's exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And so an evangelist is a person who proclaims this um, in, um, in some ways is not an apostle. I have sort of an, a theory that a, an apostle is an evangelist, shepherd, and teacher rolled into one on a more profound level uh, so that they, they can plant 
churches according to the blueprint of the local church that they grew out of and were sent out of. But we'll talk about that when we get to the apostles in a couple weeks. So let's, uh, let's actually turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and we'll read the account of Philip. Uh, many of you know that we read this account when... Uh, hey John Luke, get me a couple of those note cards on the pew there. I'm going to actually read from my old-fashioned Bible. Just note cards. There's uh, some note cards there. Just give me two or three of those. just so I can stick it in here. Okay. Now, let's start in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, of course, there was a great persecution arose after the stoning of, Philip, or of, of Stephen. Just so you know, let's go to a little background. Let's back up and talk about who Philip is. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, there, there's a little bit of a controversy within the community, as Josiah talked about community this morning at 9.30, Anyone who's tried to do family or community knows that community and family are hard. I met with a, uh, a young man. He's 53, younger, so that's young by my standards, uh, <laughs> this week. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, relationships are hard. If there's anything that we've emphasized in the last 45 years, is how to do relationships in, in the Christian community. Relationships are hard, very hard. And so in Acts 6, there's a problem develops that some people are basically saying that as they serve the, the meals and so forth, they're o- overlooking the, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Jewish women who were widows, who were not born Israelites, but had converted from the... Uh, you know, from the other Roman nations, uh, nations within the Roman Empire and so forth, and that they were being overlooked. And, of course, the apostles actually respond by saying, we can't take time away from studying the Scriptures or preaching the Scriptures. They just say from the Scriptures or from the Word. So it doesn't specify whether they mean the study of the Word or the proclaiming of it. I think it means both. We can't take time away from that in order to, to handle this, to wait tables. So you choose seven men from among you. And I think this, and most, most uh, Bible commentators agree, that this was the birth of the deacon ministry within the church, although it's not specifically said in Acts chapter 8. And it was the birth of the idea that Paul espouses later, that those who serve well as deacons attain to a great standing in the faith. We always have uh, deacon type of people be people that we hope will become elders and, um, and evangelists and things of that nature. And uh, so they choose seven men, and among them are Stephen and Philip, and they go on to great renown in the, uh, in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Stephen's renown was short-lived, uh, it, uh, it lasted one more chapter, Acts 7, and uh, they didn't like his message uh, even worse than most people don't like mine. We've never actually had to put up chicken wire like in the Blues Brothers or anything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they liked Stephen's message so much that they didn't order any copies, and, uh, and they stoned him to death. But it is a great message. You should read it. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. And this leads to a great persecution. And so much of the church of Jerusalem is scattered, except not the apostles. And one of the people who's scattered is one of the seven named Philip. And Philip gets to a city called Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is in a region called Judea. It's just north of a, of a territory called Idumea. And Samaria is kind of right smack in the middle of Israel. And the Samaritans were uh, at odds with the Jews on a number of issues, one of which is they only received the first five books of, of, the New, of the Old Testament, what's called the Torah or the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. They only acknowledge those books as being Scripture, 
And the Jews looked down on them because they saw them as mixed interracially during the Babylonian captivity and so forth. And they looked down on them so much that they, when they traveled from the northern part of Israel, which is where Jesus grew up in, in uh, the area called Galilee that has cities like Capernaum and Nazareth, that is just northwest of the city called the area called the Decapolis or the Ten Cities, they would actually go through the Decapolis, cross the Jordan River, travel south along the east side of the Jordan River so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria and then cross back over the Jordan River again to go to Jerusalem for the festivals because that was how prejudiced they were against the Samaritans. So Philip, at the start of what we're about to read, Philip is in Samaria, and he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel to to the Samaritans. Now, interestingly, there's no record that he asked the apostles what they thought. My guess is that this kind of thing was discussed among the apostles at times. And Philip was one of the great leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So maybe they had a uh, agreed upon strategy that the gospel is for all nations. Certainly, Jesus had made that clear in some of his first speeches recorded in Luke chapter 4 in Capernaum and Nazareth and so forth. Um, and he had made it clear in several of his other uh, speeches, and he had made it clear in his parable of the Good Samaritan, and especially in John 4, when he shared the gospel with the Samaritan woman. Jesus was making a trip uh, through Israel and and didn't follow the practice of going to the other side. He went right through Samaria and sat down and talked to a Samaritan woman. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and Jewish men didn't talk to women in public. So Jesus is quite deliberately changing everything when he does that. And I'm certain that Philip was at least aware of that much when he decides to stop in Samaria. So that's kind of interesting. But I also think that Philip, as we're going to see from the text understands that this proclaiming the kingdom of God to the Samaritans and God uh, welcoming them the way he did by signs and attesting wonders, uh, he knows that's going to be controversial among some of the Jewish Christians. So let's pick it up there. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For uh, many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Now that's one of the great uh, changes that is, is in the early church. Because the ceremonial, uh, covenantal ceremony, all covenants have ceremonies that are sealed with signs, like we do in, in marriage. We have the sign of a wedding ring and so forth. And so the sign of, of being part of the people of God in the old covenant was circumcision and therefore only performed on men. And so something that's, that's quite radical, uh, even more radical than... Uh, then Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, is that uh, from, from the beginning, Christians baptized both the men and the women alike, making the, the women equal to men in importance and as covenant members of the people of God. Very important. So they were being baptized, men and women alike, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip As he observed signs and miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, 
they sent them Peter and John. They didn't mess around. The top two apostles that are still left because James is dead by this time. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. By the way, it's from this incident that the word simony comes from which simony is the selling of church offices, uh, which was uh, one of the great issues that brought about the Reformation, the, you know, selling of church offices for money. Uh, uh, Peter ends by saying, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Now, I wish we had time to talk about the, uh, the relationship between all occult spirits and the spirits of bitterness, but we will not address that. Uh, but there's also always a direct relationship. Uh, unforgiveness and bitterness begin to let many terrible things into your life. So um, let's talk a little bit about the scriptures in terms of uh, the Philip model. This is probably the only passage in the New Testament where we can really say this is what an evangelist is. An evangelist is someone who proclaims the gospel. So notice some things different than what a lot of churches call evangelists today. It wasn't in a church building at a church meeting. It was in the open square in the marketplaces. That's uh, because most evangelists that come for the revival or whatever are speaking to... uh, to Christians or backslidden Christians or lukewarm Christians who are going to come forward and give their life to Christ for the 73rd time. He's speaking to people who don't know the message at all. And God is bearing witness to the message by signs and wonders that include even the lame walking and demons coming out of many. All evangelists have signs and wonders in their ministry. When people call themselves evangelists so-and-so and there's no accompanying miracles, it's a little bit like a little boy dressing up in his dad's uh, you know, wingtip shoes and his dad's suit and, and his, the hat that when he puts it on, it falls down to here because it's too big for his head and then is walking around in shoes that are too big trying to pretend he's his father. Uh, they might have in seed form the calling to evangelism that would lead them to someday be acknowledged as a biblical evangelist. But most of the people we call evangelists today fall short of the biblical model of what an evangelist is. So an evangelist operates outside the local church. He operates transloking locally. He proclaims the gospel to large numbers of people that are unreached and are, and are unaware of the, of the message and God confirms his message by demons coming out and, and uh, miraculous healings. That's an evangelist. In Acts 21.8, it says, On the next day we left the came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, which we've already pointed out, we stayed with him. So... Um, Second Timothy 4, 5 says, but you, you, Paul is talking to Timothy. I actually have this scripture on the wall of my study. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul is not saying that Timothy is an evangelist. Timothy is a member of an apostolic team and is not probably to be called an apostle. But he is part of Paul's apostolic team. And we're going to look at apostles. The apostles have all the gifts of shepherds, teachers, and evangelists in one person, and they plant churches 
based on the model of the church they came from. And apostles have a great uh, insight and understanding of Jesus Christ. Uh, An evangelist doesn't necessarily plant churches, but he makes provision for the, the people to be grafted into the church. So, uh, evangelists also baptize converts. Now, notice that it's clear in this passage that although Philip was casting demons out and healing the sick, and they were being baptized, men and women alike, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then it says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard about this. So when would that have been? Samaria is about a day and a half's walk from Jerusalem. So to walk there and back would take about three days. Uh, Because of the nature of the outstanding signs and wonders in the controversy uh, of bringing Samaritans in, I think someone went to tell the apostles within the first day or two of when things started happening. I actually think Philip probably requested that. Now, the reason I think this is this. I have prayed for some people that have gotten sicker, but I have prayed also for a few people that have been healed. And there's been occasions where there was a gift of healing present in which uh, all of a sudden something outside my normal realm of faith occurred, and I knew the person was going to get healed. I've cast demons out of probably 500 to 1,000 people over the years, and I can tell you it takes a lot more anointing to see actual healings and actual deliverances than it does to pray for people to get baptized in the Spirit. It's a lot easier level of anointing to carry to help people get baptized in the Spirit than it is to do effective deliverance. So why uh, do we not have Philip just laying hands on them and having them get baptized in the Spirit? I think because of this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We don't think too much in terms of covenants in our culture. We're not, uh, you know, our divorce rate tells us we don't do covenants very well. The fact that uh, every type of business, from buying a house to buying a car, has at least 30 more pages of documents to sign today than it did 30 years ago is because we have become gradually a pagan nation. And when you become pagan, you gradually become a covenant breaker. And so there has to be a document for this and a document for that and a document for every excuse or way you would want to wiggle out possible. So, what, so just a, a little bit of understanding of covenants. The Bible is, is called the Old and the New Covenants. And it's actually a series of covenants. In our series on covenants, we list eight major covenants in the Bible. And uh, all covenants have terms, conditions, parameters. The gospel, when you enter into it, is you're entering into a covenant relationship with God. It's not a whimsical relationship with God. And God's way of dealing with you isn't based on how he's feeling that day, as, as dealing with your roommate often is. It's not based on uh, sometimes when we're dealing with our spouses or our friends in the church. uh, How they're behaving toward us might vary quite a bit based on what kind of day they're having or how much we've upset them or how much we were inconsiderate or whatever. God is always consistent to his nature, to his attributes, and to his revealed covenants. He always acts covenantally. And at the beginning of the Christian life, there are two great covenants, covenantal ceremonies, which are one in themselves, and the two together are also one. 
because biblical math is like that. Many of you are married, and uh, many of you hope to be married. And when marriage, you find out that you, you still are a unique individual. And marriages are much easier to uh, develop into a good marriage if each individual who starts the courting process and ends up at, at the altar is a healthy person first. And your spouse can't give you that. And you can't enter the marriage hoping your spouse will come along. We're in a time where we're doing, socializing and discipling men very badly in our culture. And so we have a, a great Christian dilemma where often there are more mature women than there are men. And, uh, and so women are having to face a choice. Do I stay single or do I marry someone who's not really mature enough to be married? I think the second choice is a painful choice at, at, at a minimum. So in the Christian life, the two covenants that enter the kingdom of God are water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, water baptism is understood to somewhat differently, and there are debates about it and so forth, and especially in, uh, some issues like pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Do we baptize infants based on the faith of their parents, or do we wait till a person has faith for themselves, we often called believer's baptism, after their conversion? Another issue in baptism is in some uh, forms of pedo-baptism, that is, baptizing of infants, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in baptismal regeneration, that baptism itself regenerates you. Protestants don't agree with that, neither do the Scriptures. And so um, if you baptize your infant, they still have to become a Christian. But they're fully members that the ceremony of water baptism is to enter uh, the church as a member of the church. We happen to believe, we happen to, like the reformers, believe in pedo baptism as a church, although we don't require that for membership or even for being a leader. But we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We think that's a great mistake. So there, but whatever, the main point there is that water baptism is a covenantal ceremony that includes the symbolism of both washing away your sins in water and entering into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in that you're, you're immersed in the water, you're buried in the water, and then you're risen from the water. And uh, both of those aspects of baptism are highly symbolic. Every covenant has signs and ceremonies. Likewise, being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a covenantal ceremony that's entrance into the, the age to come. It's a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. The difference is that we can wrongly water baptize a candidate, someone can come to us and uh, claim Christ, and we could do our best to know if uh, they're a Christian or not, and we could be wrong, as apparently they might have been here with Simon. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say Simon was a false believer. It says Simon believed. So he probably was, should have been water baptized, yet his heart was not ranked within him. He had some sanctification and maturation issues, to say the least, because he wanted to buy the ability to lay hands, uh, which is obviously a gift that uh, has nothing to do with money. So my point is simply this. Um, only God can baptize in the Holy Spirit, even though he calls us to lay hands on people to receive the Spirit, like Paul does with the 12 men in Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 19, 1 through 6. Or like uh, Ananias does with Paul in Acts chapter 9. 
you know, in Acts 10, when, the, when God pours the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius and his household and his neighbors and a whole batch of Gentiles, which was probably 30 or 40 or 50 people, because it's a, he says he gathered his whole family and his neighbors and friends, uh, God took the initiative in that because they would have never water baptized the Gentiles because their theology still needed straightened out. That was the whole reason the Holy Spirit gave Peter the vision the first three times, and he met much opposition when he returned. So what I think happens here in Samaria is I think that Philip was acting, this is an important point, I'm developing this so much because I want you to understand how a biblical evangelist works. A biblical evangelist uh, is not an apostle and he's not planning a church, but he's working with the apostles and the church planners in such a way that I think he waited for Peter and John to come quite intentionally. I think he probably sent people to, to Jerusalem to tell them, go get the, some of the apostles and tell them what's going on up here because God's doing mighty things. People are getting delivered from demons. People are getting healed, and they're turning to Christ. And we're baptizing them, and I want the apostles to put their seal of approval on this. And they noticed that the apostles didn't send uh, like they did later when the gospel breaks out in Antioch, they sent Barnabas. But the apostles send Peter and John. That's like not saying, let's not just send a couple guys that are elders or deacons. Let's send the top elders we have. Let's send the top guys. Because they understood this is a big, big deal. This is the reconciliation of all things. This is the reconciliation of a division between peoples that goes back hundreds of years. This is bigger than integrating the church in America would be. More difficult to see happen than that. This is a big, big deal. For by one spirit, you are all baptized into one body. So an evangelist, all that long development is to say this. An evangelist always works in connection with the leadership of the local church to make sure the local church is grafting these people into its, into its context and into its people. And, you know, you, hear, you meet guys all the time at places like Wright State and so forth. They call themselves an evangelist. And they're not in relationship with any church. They may attend a church, but they're self-called, self-sent, self-motivated uh, people who are out to do their own thing. You meet that all the time. Remember when we showed that uh, movie at Wright State Campus, we met a couple of guys like that. A couple of me visited the church once or twice. But they don't really acknowledge Peter and John or, or any of the authority in the church, or nor are they working in conjunction with them. Uh, they, they're their own bosses, and they're their own uh, team, and they play in their own league, so to speak, to use sports analogies. And today the church is filled with people like that. So that's the Philip model of what an evangelist is. Then evangelists are also mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 as part of what's called the fivefold ministry gifts, which I call the sevenfold because I had helps in administrations. But um, so here's what uh, evangelists do in the local church. There should be evangelists in the local church. Number one, they heighten the evangelistic consciousness and burden of the local body. A lot of people note that our church is at times somewhat evangelistic. I'm concerned about the level of that right now, and uh, you can better believe we'll be addressing that here. Because uh, one of the reasons I started this church is I, I, we were in a church that we love and admire, and one of the things that was quite clear, which is, most, is the case in most evangelical churches, 85% of the church resources and 85% of um, the leadership is 
is oriented toward maintaining the present buildings and present program and present people that we have. Now, anyone who's ha- uh, had a family knows that when a new kid comes, it's a big deal to the whole family. And a lot more than 10 or 15 or 20% of the resources of the family get involved in getting ready for that kid. There's wallpapering to be done, cribs to be bought. Uh, you know, there's all kind of, you know, you got to store up little socks and diapers and and uh, you, there, provisions have to be made. And it's the, how are we going to do the rooms? You know, we, you know, I remember when my youngest brother was was born, we lived in a little house with three bedrooms and there were already three brothers in one bedroom, two sisters in another and my parents in another. So where's this? Six uh, kid gonna go. <laughs> you know, there's there's gonna have to be some rearranging. Now, uh, some of you come from bigger families than me, and so you're nodding. Yeah, I remember. You know, uh, you know, can we stack three bunk beds on top of each other, <laughs> and so forth? So, um, but you don't have children by accident. Of course, I guess people do, but uh, (laughs) uh, nevertheless, even when the child is conceived by accident, there's a lot of planning that has to come to the birth of the child. And so uh, all I'm saying is that an evangelist, his job in the local church is to heighten everyone's consciousness about new people I'm amazed at, at uh, this is a problem we are struggling with way more than most people in our church see. When you start having a good level of Christian community, which this is probably the best level of Christian community I know of, we have a very good amount of Christian community going on and so forth, and it's so easy to end up fellowshipping with the people you already know and love and not be taking and not really being doing that much to to be orienting towards those who don't belong. An evangelist helps the local body think more about that more of the time and plan for it and change what they're doing to fit it. An evangelist also teaches in such a way as to restore all the elements of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We have had a a trend in Bible-believing Christianity that you can date to approximately 1830 to 1870 range, where we have almost 200 years now of trying to reduce the gospel to make it more acceptable to unbelievers. And there's been some significant turns in the road, and so it's important to study church history and study the content of the message Go back online. You can read George Whitfield and John Wesley's sermons, for instance. You can read John Chrysostom's sermons. And go back and look at the gospel that was preached in other centuries compared to what we preach today. And so one of the calls of the evangelist is to restore the whole message to the local church. And that has to be both, listen carefully, in the proclamation of what we're saying and what we're embodying in our lifestyle together. I've got to move along because I'm way past time. So some of the missing elements, you know, element four of our eight elements is... is, um, Christ as the, is the true Israel, and the fact that the gospel was always preached with Old Testament history as part of the message. That's never done today, and that's a big mistake. Uh, true biblical Christology, exclusivity. You know, I've known of Christian groups that uh, have outreaches to, say, international students or something like that, who make it a point that we never say Jesus is the only way. But the message of the gospel in the, in the New Testament is clear. 
There is no other name under heaven than Jesus Christ, whereby which we must be saved. There, he's not a way, a truth, and a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Repentance. There is a very shallow definition of sin because we are antinomian and then, therefore, our understandings of sin are neo-gnostic, and we make sin out of things like, you listen to Christian rock music <laughs> or something silly like that. And uh, I, I know people who uh, their whole life was messed up by all kind of pietistic rules about what it means to be a Christian. Don't eat, don't drink, don't tell, and don't run around with people who do those things, with no true understanding of, of sin being lawlessness. Uh, we, don't, we, we need to restore a much deeper understanding of grace. There's a reason why we call this church Grace Christian Fellowship, and I want you to understand what that means to me is that we're in pursuit of grace. I don't think we quite understand grace just yet. I already know that if I did the 17-part series that we use called Grace Upon Grace again, I could probably do better than I did the first time because I've learned more about grace since then. And so many of us need to go a lot further in our knowledge of and experience of grace. Signs and wonders. The, uh, applying the gospel into cultural dominion and the restoration of all things. These are all things that a biblical evangelist does. Not what gets called an evangelist in pietistic, neo-gnostic, evangelical Christianity. Thirdly, an evangelist increases the effectiveness, the numbers, and the degrees of conversion. What we have today is biblically incomplete conversions. And so most Christians need to be converted. Most converts need to be converted. Most people have been converted to less than a biblical gospel. And that involves everything from what we call the five first steps of entering the kingdom of God to the attributes of God, to what it means to be a disciple, to why you're, you're not just, you know, why it's a both and you're born between you and God and you're reborn into the family of God. And you can't not have both. All of these kind of things, uh, we, we have had a close to 200-year trend now to try to make Christianity more acceptable by minimizing its cost and its offenses. But the, the scriptures make it very clear that the, the cross is an offense. The cross actually says you're a prideful, self-seeking, narcissistic rebel. <laughs> And that's just the beginning of how messed up you are. And God has come to save you and forgive you and have mercy on you, although you deserve his wrath to the uttermost. That's not a popular message in our day. To me, uh, one of the ways that an evangelist makes it, uh, the ministry acceptable is he helps the church learn how to start with uh, but such am I. You know, Paul made much of the fact that he was a murderer. Because if you get around someone who has a little bit of zeal and a little bit of anointing and a little bit of commitment and a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of grace and a little bit of giftedness, it's going to be obvious that they're, they're a much superior person to what we're producing today. And so it's very, very, very important to acknowledge that though all those things, if we're in possession of any of them, are by the free gift and grace of God. 
we have nothing good within ourselves. And people are more effective at evangelism when you're more effective at convincing them that you're a great sinner. And there's such a, there's such a, uh, I was a sinner, but then I got saved in 1974. And since then, I thought about sinning once. But, you know, <laughs> that really, we have these testimonies that are like, draw a line. No one gets converted like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and we have stressed walking in the light and truth and so forth. And I know that there is no good Christians in our church, starting with the pastor. The pastor is a lousy Christian. Come and join Lousy Grace Christian Fellowship. <laughs> and uh, an evangelist helps people know that we all fall short and Christ came to save us. And again, lastly, he's not an apostle, but like Philip, he works under and in conjunction with apostles, shepherds, and teachers. And he works in such a way that the people get grafted into the church. And if uh, disciples aren't made, you know, I, I remember being part of a certain church, and they uh, had the altar call kind of mentality and so forth. And I remember they had an outreach to a particular high school and so forth. And they came back, and uh, you could, it was almost like watching a Western movie. The uh, youth pastor gave a testimony in front of the whole church about how many people had received Christ and had gotten saved. And it was almost like he was twirling his two six-guns. You know, we, we got like 48 of them or something. And I was the person who was in charge of doing the follow-up. And so I happened to notice that three of those 48 people attended the church one time. No one came back a second time. Now, that's nothing. That's zero usefulness. If they do not become a disciple of the kingdom of God and get fully involved in a a community-style body of Christians, nothing has transpired. In fact, if you've given them false assurances of salvation, then you become a peddler of the gospel like a used car salesman. It's just, you know, nine easy payments. No, it's not. It's going to kill you. It's going to cost you everything, every day. And you're going to have to die daily. And the Christian life is the toughest life possible. And the only thing worse than than following Christ fully is not. Right? So why, why sell them anything else? Well, hopefully we've at least introduced the subject of what a New Testament evangelist is. Again, they have two functions, both outside the church, but evangelists have a function inside the church, And too little of that is understood in our day. So many churches are oriented toward the people we already have, the buildings we already have, the programs we already have, and the gospel is never supposed to be about that. Uh, We always need to be about fulfilling the Great Commission, and we need to ask ourselves individually and corporately, what am I doing about it? And is what I'm doing about it commensurate to the task? Am I memorizing that, you know what, I, I find that uh, one of the most helpful things in my ministry, uh, which is not very good ministry, but by the grace of God, sometimes there's some fruit and so forth. And uh, But, you know, when I was a young Christian, I carried three by five note cards around, and I memorized a few thousand scriptures. Those help me help other people every day. Now, I don't always say, James chapter 1, verse 3 says, consider it all joy or something. You know, because we don't need to necessarily show off, but I might say, well, in the book of Acts, you know, I, and, and I know it's chapter 20, verse 28, but I'm not going to necessarily say that. 
uh, you know, you don't want to come across as, but you do want to come across as knowing the scriptures and why it's important to quote them in, in evangelism and discipleship is I love Samuel Chen Sing Pung. I think he loves me, but I can guarantee you that he doesn't care that much about my opinion. If he makes a lunch date with me, he's wanting to find what God's opinion is. And memorizing a few thousand scriptures is a start towards starting to understand what God's opinion is. So I hope everyone in Grace Christian Fellowship has a scripture memory plan. If you don't, then you're not doing what Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Because we've said since 2003, have a scripture memory plan and carry scripture memory cards in your pocket. So if you don't do that, then you're disobeying God. Because it was never given as a suggestion. That's what we do here. We memorize several thousand scriptures in the first few years of being a Christian. And we familiarize ourselves with the content of every book of the Bible. Can you, uh, if someone says book of Joel, can you give a summary of that book from out of your head? I think by the time you're a few years old in the Lord, you ought to be able to. Because what's ultimately important is my opinion that in a quarter might get you an old-fashioned phone call when they used to have those payphone things. I have to update my analogy. That plus my opinion plus two dollars will get you a black coffee at Starbucks, <laughs> smallest size. <laughs> uh, you know that's the only thing I know at Starbucks because I just have black coffee, but uh, I don't like all that sugar and lattes and crap like that, but. Anyway, uh, the point is my opinion is not worth anything. What we, you know, 2 Corinthians 2, 16, after a whole chapter about the Holy Spirit, he ends it by saying, and we have the mind of Christ. When, when I get the leadership team together on Monday nights, I'm trying to ha- help, have them help me find what the mind of Christ is about a lot of things. Because our opinion's not really very valuable. And so that's why we use a team of people who know the Lord and know the scriptures and seek the Lord together. Because we're trying to find what God's opinion is. And an evangelist helps all of us do more of that. Amen. Anvesh, I guess you're up. Amen.